For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. I never read this passage from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth without remembering an experience I had some years ago down in Texas. The pastor had called me about two and a half years before and asked if I would come and preach a three-night series similar to our Barton Clinton Gordy series here. Now, this was a small East Texas county seat town, probably 10, 12,000 people. Methodist church had probably 1,000 to 1,200 members. I did not know this pastor, had never met him. He simply said, we want you to come and preach. Bring the five best sermons you have ever written in your life and preach them for us. I said I'd do the best I could. Uh, I had a very quick lunch after church that day here, and I started driving to Texas. I got to this county seat town about a quarter before 7. The service was starting at 7.30. When I checked into the motel, they told me I would be using... Uh, I saw a little note in my box, and it was another Methodist preacher who had been asked to come and lead the singing and to sing solos during this series. So when I got to my room, I buzzed his room. Uh, he asked, uh, do you know any special needs of this church? Anything special they might like to sing? I said, I've never been here in my life. Are there any special problems, he asked. I said, the pastor didn't mention any. Well, he said, how about if we leave about 10 after 7? I said, fine. So at 10 after 7, he and I drove over to the church together. The pastor greeted us and told us, do whatever we did best. And so the, the one introduced to be the song leader announced the first hymn right after the opening prayer. Everybody stood up to sing. But that church had a center aisle. And everybody to my right was under 35 and had their hands up like this, all of them. And everybody on this side of the aisle were more than 35, and they were standing, glaring at this half over here. The song leader looked at me, and I looked at him, and both of us knew this church has a problem. I got through with the sermon, and the pastor announced that they were going to have punch and cookies, but he said, perhaps some of you would like to ask questions of Dr. Biggs. Dr. Biggs, would you be willing to answer questions? And I said, yeah, sure. So we went to Punch and Cookies. 
And the first question was, are you married? Do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? And so on. And then they asked the question, how do you feel about speaking in tongues? Um, I didn't know how the pastor felt. He hadn't mentioned this being a problem at all. So I said, I've not discussed this with your pastor. I'm not sure I'm going to give the answer he would give you. But I'm assuming you've already had opportunity to ask him, so I'm going to answer it the way I feel best. And I told him that most time in my experience in United Methodist churches, it turned out to be very divisive. If it became a part of public worship, I felt it became very divisive. Well, after a while, the other clergy guy, he and I went back to the motel and I slept. Well, the next morning, a phone rang and the preacher said, I got a problem. Uh, several of these young families went home last night and they didn't like your answer and the young women had cried all night. If I could put together coffee or something this morning, would you be willing to talk to them a little more? And I said, sure. My favorite way to spend a Monday morning. <laughs> so when I met at the Parsons that morning, I discovered what had happened. This church had had a lay witness mission. Now, my mother and father worked in lay witness missions for years. It was a very good program in the Methodist church for a long time. A, a local church would say, we would like to have a lay witness mission. They would choose a coordinator, and this coordinator would find a truck driver from one place and a school superintendent from another and maybe a surgeon from another uh, and someone who was a farmer from a fourth. And these people would all come to that church on the weekend, and they would testify, simply telling their faith journey how I came to faith as a long-distance truck driver, how I as a farmer came to faith, and so on. And there were small discussion groups and so on. A good thing. But over time, a few, down in Texas at least, decided can't be blessed by God without speaking in tongues. You just can't take God's blessing without speaking in tongues. And my mother and father saw this happen a couple of times where people were sort of put in a pressure spot, everybody huddling around and praying over that this person would get the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And it became divisive, and surely enough, the preachers killed it because they didn't need their churches divided all over the state of Texas. Uh, that morning, I could tell that these young women, and it, these were all young women who were there that morning, that they had had a new experience of some sort with the Holy Spirit and that somebody had encouraged them to speak in tongues and some had and they'd started holding up their hands every time they sang hymns, uh, that the older generation was not happy with this at all and so they were worshiping, glaring at each other. Uh, now, something that happens sometimes when people get this gift of the Holy Spirit is they start comparing notes on how their prayers got answered. Well, I prayed for the Holy Spirit and it came and I spoke in tongues. And, well, I know a woman who prayed for another woman who prayed for another woman and she got well. And so they get the idea, I can pray for anything and it'll come true. I just ask anything I want and God will give it. Until, of course, they all eventually will pray for somebody they love who's dying and the person does die. And then they need some more Christian education. One young woman finally said that morning, looking straight at me, we had this lay witness mission. It was wonderful. And we all experienced the Holy Spirit in a new way we never had before. And we started praying for a revival to come to our church. And we prayed and we prayed. And you showed up. And I said to her, Stop and think about what you've just said. 
you've been telling me that God answers your prayers. That since you started speaking in tongues, God answers your prayers. Every yes you want is a yes. You prayed for God to send somebody to preach to your church, and He sent me. So I would suggest you listen very carefully. (laughs) And then I said, look at what's happened to your church. Here are your mothers and your fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers who've been this church for 80 years. And you are all sitting over here, newcomers to the faith, glaring at each other. Do you really think that's what God's Holy Spirit wanted to happen to this church? She didn't have an answer. I said, I'm gone. I'll be back tonight. And I left. Uh, We got through the series. I couldn't tell if they were really hearing me or not. But so often, these gifts of the Spirit become divisive. Is that what God had in mind? Paul thinks not. He's heard that these gifts of the Spirit are stirring up the church in Corinth. They're at each other over who's got the bigger gift and who's got the middle size and the lesser one and so on. And he writes this letter. I've underlined four things that I think are really important to you and me. Number one, we were all baptized into one body, Jew and Gentile, free and slave. Next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. This guy, Kroll, lived in Pittsburgh. He's a Steeler fan. This guy, Penn Sarah, he grew up not far from Pittsburgh. He's a Steeler fan. I'm going to root for the Cardinals. <laughs> the Cardinals have never been there before. And most people thought they didn't have a chance this time. One of the reasons they have a chance is a young man named Larry Fitzgerald. Have you been watching the playoffs last Sunday afternoon? He caught three touchdown passes in the first half. He's a wide receiver who has mediocre speed for a wide receiver. He is a wide receiver who is medium height for wide receivers. Yet he catches almost everything that's thrown to him. And people are asking, how did he learn to do that? There's a woman professor up in Toronto, Canada, that thinks she has the answer. She said, I've been testing outstanding athletes for a number of years now. I get them to wear glasses that have cameras built in, but the cameras are not photographing what's out there. They're photographing what's in the eye. And I'm convinced that Larry Fitzgerald has what goalies in hockey have who can block a puck coming 140 miles an hour, a baseball hitter who can hit a fastball coming 96 miles an hour with a little piece of wood. They have the quiet eye, she said. The quiet eye. The brain receives data, in this case, through the eyes. And most of us blink fairly quickly. She said, these unusual athletes have the quiet eye They may not even know their eyes are cameras, but they are. And they open the lens to receive data and they don't blink for a lot longer period than most of us. They don't blink. They have quiet eyes. 
The second thing she said is that when you receive data through the quiet eye, you are running through the files in your computer for other situations similar to this one that will help you know how to react to this one. And she said, Larry Fitzgerald has it. His father is a sports writer. He has written for the newspaper in Minneapolis for years. And because of that connection, he was able to get his son Larry in as one of the ball boys for the Minnesota Vikings when he went into middle school. And for the next six years, he was a ball boy for the Minnesota Vikings. But not only during games, he got to go to the practices. And time after time after time, he watched a guy named Chris Carter. And he watched another one named Randy Moss. He even got to play catch with them as he got bigger and bigger to run pass routes with them before he went to Penn State. He's got the quiet eye and a wonderful memory of similar situations. Jesus talked about one eye. One eye focused that when you come up against it, hold to a few things and never let them go. One, God is love. That's who God is and that's the way God behaves. God is love. Two, God so loved that he sent his son Jesus that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That a God who so loved you would not then abandon you, but indwell in your innermost heart as Holy Spirit to guide, comfort, counsel, direct you. You were baptized into that faith. So, Mr. Wesley said, receive this gift, this grace of God that justifies and sets you right. Number two, Paul says we've all drunk of the one spirit. We have all drunk of the one spirit. Now, some scholars think that means Holy Communion. Okay? We've been baptized. Now we celebrate Holy Communion. In the Methodist Church, we have just those two sacraments, as you know. In the big mosaic in the south end of our great hall, those two sacraments. Uh, we have the shafts of wheat for bread, and we have bunches of grapes for wine. Then we also have the font with the hand dipping down into it and as it comes up, water dripping back into the font as I baptized little Jackson a few minutes ago. Okay? Baptism, Holy Communion. We've all drunk from that same Spirit. But it also means the Spirit which Christ Jesus said should be in us and the Spirit that Paul said was in fact in Christ Jesus when he wrote to the church at Philippi. Christ who could have counted equality with God a thing to be grasped, instead emptied himself, taking on the role of a servant, become obedient, obedient even unto death, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That spirit is the one we're supposed to have drunk in. Dr. Barbara Brown-Taylor, I've quoted to you any number of times. I like her reading, her writing that I get to read. Uh, had not met her until a couple of years ago, uh, though I've been reading her work for probably 25 years or so. She is an Episcopal priest. She is also a college and seminary professor at Piedmont in Georgia. 
she was in Tulsa uh, for Phillips Theological Seminary and their Minister's Week program. Dr. Tabernay called me and asked, um, do you have somebody who could give Dr. Taylor a tour of your church? I said, I would do it myself. When are you coming? And he told me, and I met them and walked her through the church, and she asked questions, and oh, that's, oh, that's wonderful, that's beautiful. Uh, it was fun to walk her through. I read something she wrote just recently, and it was about this one spirit from which we've drunk. She said, I speak outside the seminary any number of times, and people ask me, what about your prayer life? What do you find most meaningful in your own prayers? And she said, they think I'm going to say I go into a room and I lock all the doors and pull down the drapes and just talk to God or listen to God. I tell them, mostly I do it when, I, when I'm doing laundry, she said. She said, my husband and I have chosen to live on a little farm in Georgia, and I pray while I do chores. She said, I still love for my laundry to smell like sunshine and wind that's blown through wet laundry, so I still hang mine out as often as I can. And she said, there's something satisfying about walking out with that hamper full of wet clothes and starting to hang them up on the clothesline. I'm sort of compulsive, obsessive, she says, so I start with the shirts and then the pants and then the underwear. And finally, my husband's socks, she said, I hang up one at a time, so they're like exclamation points at the end of a long sentence. But she said, when you're standing out there hanging that laundry on the line, you can smell the air. You can smell the grass. You can smell the animals. You can smell fresh laundry. And even though it's just been washed, I can still smell it, the guy I love more than anybody in the world. I pray, she said, when I'm watering the animals. Have you ever carried a bucket of water to a really thirsty horse? You ever poured fresh water for a cow, a dog, a kitten, chickens? She said, God, through Christ, that last night he was with us, did not say, now be sure you remember this. He said, remember to do this. And he broke bread. And he poured the cup. And he washed their feet. We're all supposed to have drunk from that spirit. Number three, if one suffers, we all suffer. Terry Teachout is a critic for the Wall Street Journal. I've discovered that when he likes something, I like it. You know, that's the kind of critic you need. Uh, you don't want a critic that they say, this is really good, and you go, and it's terrible. You ever tried a food editor who says, this is the most wonderful new restaurant, and the food's mediocre at best? No. One that says something's good, and you go and you find it good, then you read that one again. That's the way I do with Terry Teachout. He says the greatest playwright in the world today is Brian Friel. That's his opinion. Brian Friel. An Irishman. I remember a play of his that Gail and I saw with Theodore Tulsa here just a few years ago called Dancing at Lugnasa. It's autobiographical. It's about Brian's own life. He was a little boy in Ireland in the 1930s. This play is about a little boy. He calls him Chris in the play, though his own name is Brian. Chris, Chris's mother, and his mother's four sisters. There are five sisters and one little boy. And it's 1936 in Ireland, in Ballybeg, Ireland. And they're nearly starving to death. The Great Depression that swept across Oklahoma and Texas 
when it did not rain, that Great Depression spread to Western Europe as well, and certainly to Ireland. These large Catholic families that could no longer support themselves, nobody could buy what they were producing. They were barely eking out a living. No men, five sisters and one little boy, and how they're getting through the Great Depression. There was no single line in the play that I thought, this will be really good in the sermon. It was just the story itself. That after they worked hard digging this peat that they could burn in their ovens, after they would gather an egg or two, maybe a little bit of the flour for bread, these five sisters would grab this little boy's hands and they would ring dance. Still dancing at Lugnasa. If one of us suffers... We all suffer. If one's having a hard time, we're all having a hard time. Number four, if one is honored, if one does well, then all rejoice with that one. It's about sharing, you see. Last Monday, January 19th, Edgar Allan Poe would have been 200 years old. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts. When he was two, his father abandoned little Edgar and his mother. When Edgar was three, his mother died. Now, any child who loses a father at two and a mother at three is bound to have lots of questions. And Edgar didn't seem to get his answered very well. Nobody wanted Edgar. Finally, somebody said, well, I know a family who knows a family who knows a family who knows a family who would like to have a little boy. And a family came all the way from Richmond, Virginia to adopt this little boy. His name was Edgar Poe. Their name was Alan. So they decided, well, they just let their name be his middle name. And he became Edgar Allan Poe. But the family would remember that when he was a little boy, he was fascinated with death. What had happened to his father, whom he'd ne he would never see him again? What happened to his mother? What happens in death? When he was a boy, they said if he were missing, they would find him down at the cemetery, walking, walking in the cemetery. He's just a boy, all by himself. He had a lot of problems. He went to University of Virginia, was thrown out of school because he was a compulsive drinker and gambler. He went on to West Point, you may recall, in subordination. He didn't take orders very well. They threw him out. He became a writer. We know The Raven. We know uh, The Telltale Heart, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. But he had another one he wrote one time. Before he died, an alcoholic at just 40 years of age. This one was called The Realm of the, of the uh, uh, Funnel. This one was about a, a Norwegian fisherman who in fishing one day was drawn down into a vortex. And he could tell that the power was so strong he was not going to get out of this. He was going to die right there. And as he speaks in Edgar Allan Poe's poem about this realm, this realm of the dead, this fisherman said, It's wonderful, if one has to die, to be pulled down by so great a force and power. The only thing I regret is that I cannot share with those I love most the deepest mysteries of God. 